Welcome to System Sessions, the podcast from Education Systems Center at NIU. I'm John Furr, the Ed Systems Executive Director. We're thrilled to be back podcasting after our very long pandemic-induced pause. We hope you all heard our first episode in this series on the national leading process that District 214 uses for developing college and career pathways. In this episode, we're focusing on pathways development in Chicago. We've been working closely with a team at Chicago Public Schools and City Colleges to develop and implement high-quality college and career pathway systems, and we're wanting to take you behind the scenes of their recent launch of new models for health science pathways. Once again, I'm going to turn it over to Pathways Director Juan Jose Gonzalez and External Relations Manager Sarah Clark. Thank you, John. Juan Jose, to kick off this episode, you first headed down to the South Shore of Chicago to chat with Principal Michelle Flatt. Can you set up that scene for us? Yeah, not a problem. So South Shore International College Prep is one of the eight schools in Chicago that is piloting the new health science model pathways in Chicago public schools. After working with district level staff in the past year, I was excited for the opportunity to meet with the principal who is working on implementation of the pathway and really try to get a sense from her why pathways are a unique opportunity for CPS students relative to what has been done in the past so far. So let's listen in in our conversation with Principal Flatt. Tell us a little bit about kind of uh, South Shore International College Prep, the programs being offered, and a little bit of history of the school. Awesome. So South Shore International College Prep began about 10 years ago. We're celebrating our 10th anniversary in the fall. Um, And when the school began, the community really wanted an opportunity to have programs that would prepare students for life in college and beyond. So we implemented initially programs within IT, and then also within health and careers and business and entrepreneurship. Today, we still have a medical and health careers pathway program, as well as business entrepreneurship. Um, In terms of our medical and health careers program, we're really excited about expanding the program this fall. We're implementing dual credit opportunities for our students. And we're also going to start using a robot in class where students can actually participate in surgery and have that true hands-on experience within the medical and health career professions. The medical and health career program and adding the dual credit is aligned to some of the best practices and pathway implementation. Tell us a little bit about kind of why the dual credit opportunity is uh, an exciting opportunity for you and your students and what are some challenges you foresee with that? So I think in terms of our students, we really are focused on being a college preparatory environment. We're a selective enrollment school, and this offers the students the opportunity to really connect with a college preparatory experience. It allows them to gain that college credit during school, which then puts them well positioned when they get to college to already have the foundational courses that they need to earn their degrees. Um, I think the other part that's significant is we're also an international baccalaureate school. So this makes our medical and health careers program even more competitive in terms of what IB offers, um, because it is really offering that college credit component, which professionalizes it um, versus kind of sometimes in the past people seen it as a low skills um, pathway and really it is a high skills pathway. We have a doctor who teaches the course. We have a working medical lab um, and it's really important for our students to understand that this is pushing them forward in their college experience. What challenges do you foresee with the new approach or the kind of the new dual credit implementation? Um, I think the greatest challenge is just helping students to be accustomed to the fact that it's a college level class. We have that across the board within the school, 
I think our teachers awesome at scaffolding and really drawing the students into the experience. I think just helping them understand how to best prepare for that college level class. So we're literally going to host workshops for them during the summer um, so that they can have some foundational elements that, that they may be missing. We've added an anatomy and physiology course as a school as well. So students have that elective opportunity that will support their learning within the medical and health careers pathway. So I think just that, that beginning year, right? So we're going to learn a lot, but we're trying to be proactive so that students will be well prepared to do well in the course. And I think the other element is just helping the parents understand as well what it looks like, what the expectations are, and managing those expectations for all of our school community members and just helping them dial into what it means to be um, in a college preparatory course. We start in the fall. And as I mentioned, during the summer, during the months of July, Dr. Egarevba, our medical and health careers instructor, is going to host workshops for the students just to prepare them for the fall, the course in the fall. You know, sometimes when recruiting students for new courses and there needs to be like a socialization of the of the concept of the course and who's right for it with counselors and course schedulers. Have there been any changes or kind of uh, initiatives on your end to talk to them about that the new aspect and how to socialize that with them? Yeah, so absolutely. We've done a few different things this year. One, we've really been intentional about introducing our medical and health careers program to eighth grade students who are applying to the school, helping them understand um, the rigor of the program, what's required of them, how exciting it is, the opportunities for internships, our students work in a neighboring hospital just really helping them understand what it's about. And then when students are here for ninth and 10th grade year, providing them with supports. So our IB coordinators actually work a lot with Dr. Egarevba. Dr. Egarevba also works with our science team, um, our biology teachers in particular, as well as the science department lead who teaches anatomy and physiology. And the goal of that work is to help students really build those foundational skills so that they're strong once they get into the 11th grade program. What we've seen in the past is that sometimes students get accepted into the medical and health careers program, but they really don't have anything happening in ninth and 10th grade mm -hmm. that prepares them for success in 11th and 12th grade. So we've realigned our curriculum this year and our course of study to really strengthen those foundational elements for the school and for the students. So in addition to that, we've had after school workshops for students for the past couple of months where Dr. E's met with incoming medical and health career students who are rising juniors and just really talked them through what the expectations are. Um, we've offered them tutoring supports through academic workshops just to really help them, you know, get what they need under their belt to be successful. What are some of the school's partnerships in regards to like work-based learning? You mentioned like a hospital. Yeah, so we partner with Jackson Park Hospital. We're partnering with U of C. It's a new, it's a budding partnership, I'll call it, um, where some of the medical and health professionals there, particularly medical and health professionals of color, have been doing workshops online with our students. So we've, every, every uh, month we have a Friday per month that we call TARS Takeover Friday, where the where the TARS, um, and so it's a full day that's dedicated to exposing students to different professions, different careers, and the U of C folks came to um, speak about their work in the hospital, and there also will be after school internship opportunities for our students, and then we have a very robust partnership as well with UIC um, with 
with students who are in medical school there. And those students have also come and met with our students virtually, of course, this year, um, but met with our students and exposed them to the work that they're doing. Our students have gone to open heart surgery through the partnership with Dr. E because he's still an active doctor Mm. and he works with his colleagues to offer opportunities for the students to see things in person or virtually in person right now. And actually virtual worked out really well for that because in normal circumstances, students under 18 can't see open heart surgery happening, but because we're virtual, it allows for um, HIPAA to be protected um, and for students to see the procedure. So really awesome opportunities in this virtual environment. That's excellent. You know, sometimes with uh, with pathway implementation, work-based learning or like the internship is like a high hurdle for schools to implement. Talk to us about what structures you have placed in the school to help like teacher support students get placed in internship opportunities and how kind of how that generally works. I would say in general, we get a lot of support from the career and technical education team through central office to really help us with placing students in internships. Um, I've mentioned Dr. Agarup a million times because he's awesome. And he takes a very active role in supporting those internships as well. And we do have a service learning coordinator at the school and she supports finding those internships. But in general, we've had an ongoing partnership that has allowed students to have the internship year over year. Um, We also partner with the Red Cross, they provide scholarship opportunities to our students, and that's another internship opportunity, literally like for blood drives and things of that nature. So, you know, I'm one of those principals who's open to any opportunity that comes our way and tries to see like where we can find the best fit. Um, and so, for example, the UFC opportunity is a new one, and which is why I say it's a budding opportunity. But we've had a really healthy connection with the neighborhood hospital, which is Jackson Park Hospital. Um, there's also South Shore Hospital that we've partnered with. So Dr. E has really developed those partnerships over time um, and continued that rapport and relationship. What advice would you give to principals or other high schools who are like dipping their toe into pathway and programs in order to make sure that they ramp up well as you guys are ramping up right now? I would say don't be afraid of the hurdles of scheduling. That really ends up being one of the biggest hurdles. Like how do you figure out where to schedule the time because the classes require double periods? Um, When you really consider what's available to students in the long run. It's well worth the scheduling challenges. I'm always happy to lend my scheduler to help with that. Um, And then also just for the students, when we have the opportunities for them to have these double period schedules and then have release time to go and work at these internships, it's invaluable. And over time, I think it builds itself up on its own. You know, I think sometimes you think there's so much work to do at the outset of developing the program, but the long-term benefits are huge. So, you know, my advice would be just to use the resources available to to them. The district has been awesome with providing resources and supports um, and then grow, grow those opportunities from there um, to make sure that Uh, They're not letting go of the opportunities that are available to them. That was Principal Michelle Flatt at South Shore International College Prep, speaking with Ed Systems Pathways Director Juan Jose Gonzalez, who's here with me in the studio again. Fun fact, this past school year was actually Principal Flatt's first year at South Shore. That's right. And I'm actually pretty impressed with her and her leadership and willingness to jump into the pilot process in her first year as the principal of South Shore College Prep. 
she mentioned the support she received from central office from the district. And I figured our next conversation should be with folks at central office who are supporting the pathways work in Chicago. We're going to hear two conversations. First, your chat with Office of College and Career Success Chief Michael Duser, which took place via Zoom, on the district's overall vision for pathways. Then we're going to hear from Sarah Burdovsky and Alexandra Vlahakis, who joined us here in the studio to share their insights on how they're working with schools to implement new pathways. Give us a sense of the Office of College and Career Success. What are the purview, the responsibilities of your office and department, kind of the number of staff and the scale of this department within Chicago Public Schools? Right. Absolutely. So I lead the Office of College and Career Success. Um, and what we're all about across all of the, the sub-departments is increasing social and economic mobility for CPS students. And in particular, ensuring that we increase the number of students who are earning post-secondary credentials, preferably credentials with great value in the labor market, and that we're actually preparing students to be successful in work after school. And so we do that in a number of different ways. We have four main offices underneath the Office of College and Career Success, including the Office of School Counseling and Post-Secondary Advising, which oversees our school counseling apparatus, as well as things more specific to post-secondary advising more specifically. We oversee the Office of Social-Emotional Learning, which helps all of our schools put in place social-emotional learning practices at Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3 levels in schools. We have the Office of Student Support and Engagement, which has a lot underneath it and includes our attendance and truancy work, as well as our special supports for students involved in the juvenile justice system and for students in temporary living situations. And it also houses all of CPS's centralized work around community schools. And then lastly, we have the Office of Early College and Career Education, which oversees career and technical education, as well as early college and work-based learning in relation to both of those two. And the way that I see the work of this office is that in the interest of of producing social and economic mobility via those post-secondary credentials, we're really focused across the board on three major domains, which are helping students become academically and financially ready for post-secondary Um, making sure that they're aware of and aligned to, at least preliminarily, careers of interest, and that they're also building foundational skills that will serve them well in both school and in life and in work once they leave us. So we're really taking a multi-pronged approach to helping students become ready for post-secondary, not just to get into college or or some other post-secondary path, but to really be successful at it and have the excitement and the skills and the knowledge and the support that they need to successfully complete that path. I don't know if you know, but I am a CPS parent and I am very familiar with kind of navigating the school systems and the school models. For for our listeners who don't know, you know, in Chicago Public Schools, starting since the year 2000, there's been a really rapid expansion of innovative school models, starting with, you know, charter schools and turnarounds, but in the 2010s, expanding to IB schools and national baccalaureate, STEM programs, the expansion of selective enrollment and things of that nature. There's also been a parallel kind of recent innovation or recent emphasis at the national level in the development and the expansion of pathway programs, particularly for high school age students. Are you an advocate for pathways programs? How do you understand pathways to be defined and implemented? And how do you see them fitting within the ecosystem of Chicago? Absolutely. So, yes, I'm a pathways advocate. I'm one of the bigger pathways advocates you'll find. And to me, what a, what a pathway does is ensure that a student doesn't just have a coincidental path to success in life after high school, but a very intentional path towards life after high school. 
And what we're trying to do is really backwards map from what are the credentials, the post-secondary credentials in particular, that students need to be able to enter into and move up in careers of interest. What are the post-secondary courses that students need in order to earn those credentials? And how can we start to offer more of those courses and related supports and experiences during a student's high school experience so that it's very intentionally aligned to that kind of post-secondary success that we really hope all students achieve, but which, um, you know, our system in terms of the legacy of many years has not always been built to intentionally promote. And so when I think about Pathways, I'm really thinking about a vertically aligned course sequence that spans K-12 and college alongside a work-based learning continuum where they're getting experience with employers and even in workplaces that's aligned to their curricular pathway on, on a parallel level. Is this something that had been happening in Chicago Public Schools? Is it um, a new innovation? How embedded is it within this district? So we've had a lot of, of expansion of early college credit of many different kinds at CPS for going, going back at least a decade. And dual credit in particular has really exploded. Um, we've got a lot of it, so much more than we had 10 years ago. What we see in Chicago still, what we're seeing sort of as we're getting ready to, to implement some model pathways uh, in schools for the very first time is that we've had like a lot of districts have had random acts of dual enrollment and dual credit. That is to say, you know, we've had smatterings of dual credit and dual enrollment courses that um, different schools have, have sort of picked out as being of interest, but we haven't always, we've rarely had coherent sequences of courses whereby students can build knowledge um, cumulatively in industry aligned areas. And so that's the big change for us is being more intentional about the, the entire sequence and making sure that the courses that we do offer, we want to make sure that they certainly align with student interests. And we also want to make sure that we're doing as much as we can to accelerate students towards post-secondary completion while they're with us. And so that's been the big change is trying to be more strategic in the way that we do dual credit. Some of our schools are ahead of others in terms of doing that. We've got one school, Sarah Good STEM High School, that you know, graduates a couple of students every year with AAs, and they've got a non-negligible number of students who earn 15 or more credits um, by the time that they graduate. We would like to do more to make that more the rule than, than the exception. And so that's a big part of what we're working on now. You also mentioned, besides mentioning Sarah Good, you talked about a model pathway implementation. Can you talk to us a little more about what that is and how that may be going? Absolutely. So when we talk about model pathways, this is really that intentionally planned out sequence of coursework um, that we backwards map from credentials with high labor market value. And so we've worked um, with Ed Systems Center and we've also worked with JFF Jobs for the Future in building out these maps of courses in conjunction with our early college partner, which is our City Colleges of Chicago partner, and sort of doing some labor market analysis to understand first what are the industries out there where there are going to be significant numbers of job opportunities for students and significantly paying job opportunities for students as well? What are the post-secondary credentials that students need in order to be able to get into those careers? What are the courses available at city colleges that, that are necessary for students to earn those credentials? So what are the prerequisites? What are the distribution requirements? And then trying to arrange a strategic package of those courses in a four-year sequence for high school students that's aligned to that work-based learning continuum as well. So, for instance, you know, we are the first one that we're launching is health sciences. And we're going to have, you know, courses over the course of the student's four-year career that will enable them to earn 
15 college credits before they graduate that all are applicable towards key degrees at the city colleges in, in those in those jobs that are going to be available and well-paid. And so the idea is to take these course maps, which we are calling model pathways, and make them live and breathe in schools and make them part of the fixed program available at a lot of our high schools so that students can, can think about where do I want to wind up and how can I get there most strategically? And we know from, from research from all across the country that dual credit and dual credit pathways in particular are one of the most powerful and, and um, most rigorously well-proven methods for increasing not just college enrollment, but college success. And CPS has made a great deal of progress in the past 10 years in terms of college enrollment. And it's something that we're all really proud of. What we haven't seen is tremendous improvements in college attainment. Mm. So, you know, the, the rate of students who complete college within one and a half time has been relatively flat at about 50%. And so we think that this, this is one of our big bets to try to increase that number is actually getting those, those credits into a student's pocket before they ever leave us so that they've got a whole semester of credit under their belt. Uh, and so that it's not just any semester of credit, but it's a semester of highly applicable credit. Michael, you've mentioned several times a work-based learning continuum, and you've mentioned kind of the need of work-based learning alongside, you know, a course sequence or a course map. How is work-based learning implemented in Chicago Public Schools? How do you see it fitting or augmenting the pathway experience? Mm -hmm. So, so much of the pathways experience is about helping students think early on in their in their school careers and in their lives about what's the range of opportunities that's available to me out there in the world of work. And how might I intentionally pursue that? And how can I start to actually take some bites at the apple, both academically and experientially, to get closer to some of those visions of a post-secondary future? So the curricular part is very important, but work-based learning is an opportunity to get authentic experiences in an industry area that can help you really get a better idea than any course can tell you about what working in an industry actually entails. And we want to make sure that increasingly all schools and all students have an opportunity to experience a sequence of work-based learning experience that helps them start out at, um, you know, kind of a low intensity level. So what's out there, you know, maybe they could have uh, a guest speaker or a career fair, right? And then we want them to go even deeper in as they get older and maybe have a job shadowing experience where they go to an employer and they, they live the life for a day and see what it's like to be. Uh, a farm tech or a, you know, some, 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 a nurse, some kind of profession in the health sciences. And then ultimately we'd like to see even more students than now have the sort of most intensive kind of work-based learning experience, which would be an internship or, or uh, likely a pre-apprenticeship for high school, sagging into apprenticeship um, at the college level. We think that it's a really crucial part of a student's school experience that I think in education in general, tends to be under underrepresented. And it's a big piece of not just helping students, you know, gain skills and gain familiarity, but also understand the relevance uh, of, of what they're learning in their in their regular school curriculum. And so we want to see work-based learning expand at every level of intensity along the work-based learning continuum. And we especially want to see you know, more internships and, and pre-apprenticeships because we think that that's the most rigorous and sort of genuine preparation for careers that, that we can provide students. And um, work-based learning has, has been part of the career and technical education programming at CPS for some time. What we'd like to do is make it 
make more of it, make sure that there are different intensities of experiences that a student can experience cumulatively and that are linked to their pathway of interest. And we also want to see work-based learning be a feature of programming, not just at our CTE schools and first quote-unquote CTE students, but for a much broader set of students in the district and have you know, work-based learning really become a core part of what it means to educate a young person in Chicago and prepare them for success in life after high school. You've mentioned uh, work-based learning, the expansion of work-based learning. You've also mentioned kind of the need for a partnership with city colleges and dual credit. Are those the only kind of key stakeholders or partners in the pathways implementation, or is there an even broader ecosystem kind of in order to make this work or expand? It's it's a very broad ecosystem, and that's part of the that's part of the challenge is trying to make sure that that ecosystem is aligned and coordinated with respect to doing this. I, you know, a huge piece of the puzzle here is employer partners. You know, we can't do work based learning without a broad range of employer partners who are willing to provide work-based learning experiences for our students. And so making sure that we have a robust employer engagement function and team uh, and process for engaging new employers in, the, in offering work-based learning is really important. Obviously, also, you know, not all students are going to earn a uh, want to earn a terminal degree at the city colleges. And so over time, we want to increasingly articulate the pathways work that we're doing with transfer pathways into four-year colleges and make sure that students, when they get perhaps their AA or when they get a sufficient sort of critical mass of credits for transfer to a four-year institution, that they can do that seamlessly. And of course, you know, there's also a broad range in Chicago of both nonprofit college access and college readiness kind of partners, as well as a broad range of philanthropies that are interested in seeing this work proceed and that are interested, uh, you know, above all else, in seeing students succeed in college um, and in career. So uh, it's a it's a big ecosystem to coordinate. And I shouldn't leave out, you know, City Hall either, right? You know, uh, such a big part of making sure that we and city colleges can function as a coherent public education system means having um, City Hall working with us hand in hand to support this the, the pathway work to sort of rally support in the ecosystem and really make sure that they're bringing their their influence to bear in in getting different players in the ecosystem on the same page. Michael, a, a district the size of CPS doesn't really turn on a dime, right? So, what have been some of the barriers in implementing or expanding pathways, and have you have, have been able to reach any innovations to overcome those barriers, or is that still a work in progress? I'd say a little bit of both. We have made some progress and it's still a work in progress. So, you know, whenever you're trying to expand dual credit or dual, you know, dual credit at scale, staffing um, is going to be, it's going to be the first question you need to answer because a CPS teacher in order to teach a dual credit course needs to have a master's degree in the specific discipline of the course that's being taught, or they need to have, I believe, 18 credit hours of postgraduate credit in that field. And not all of our teachers do. So, you know, we've seen that this can be a barrier to, to implementation, you know, across the country. And so it's something that we've tried to be really intentional about um, from the outset. And so part of our school readiness framework for implementing strategic dual credit is making sure that we have teachers with the right credentials to teach all the courses in the model pathway. And there are a few pieces of that. One is just making sure that schools are attuned to that and that we've done our due diligence in, in finding out who already has these credentials and how can we get them assigned to these courses? We've got some gaps. And in that case, we've worked with city colleges to assign city colleges professors 
to come and teach the courses in lieu of a CPS teacher. And we're also exploring ways to be able to do that virtually in cases where the the city college's professor can't actually come to the physical building. So being able to build out that kind of partnership with our college partner has been really essential in terms of staffing. You know, concurrently, I think we're still working on the even longer term play here, which is really putting together a dual credit teacher pipeline so that, you know, we're never going to lack for the teachers that we need to teach all of the courses that are involved in all of the model pathways and that we we know where they are. And so, you know, we haven't yet cracked that, not completely, but we're working internally and we're working with our talent department to scope out what that might look like. And it seems likely to involve you know, incentives and supports of a few different kinds, right? Um, maybe tuition reimbursement incentives for teachers who don't yet have the right credentials or enough hours within the, the industry area to be able to, to knock out the remaining graduate hours that they need. And there's also evidence from other places that have done this well, that there are other kinds of incentives like, you know, having step and lane increases in terms of salary for teachers who have the right credentials to teach these courses and even um, bonuses for if you do have the right credentials, uh, we'll give you this additional money to teach this actual course. And so we're putting together a prospectus on how can we build out this teacher pipeline so that within the district as a whole, we have a bench of teachers who can teach all of these courses so that we never get to a place where we're not able to offer the full pathway in a given year. And we have major disruption in the student's um, educational experience and trajectory. So the idea, again, is to make these pathways really sustainable and making sure we have the right staffing, um, not just this year, but as a matter of course, is a big part of that. In regards to work-based learning, you talked a lot about like the scaling of internships, right? We're talking, you know, I, I know personally that like Chicago Public Schools has an annual graduating class of like 22,000 students or about there, right? So, you know, when people think of internships, they normally think of, you know, high school age students, juniors and seniors. Are we talking about like internships for each member of, of that cohort or how do you, how do you envision that scale? I don't know yet. I know that I want it to be more, but I'm not sure how how far we can take it. I think we'll learn a lot from these next couple of years of implementation of the model pathways in combination with the work-based learning about the extent to which we can do that at a particular school. And that will give us more insight into what's feasible at the district-wide level. The, the tough part about internships, of course, is that you can do it over the summer, and that's a perfectly valid form of, of internship. But we'd also like to see internships happening during the course of the school year so that there really is that direct day-to-day kind of correspondence between here's what I learned in class today and here's what I'm actually applying in an authentic work workplace experience at CPS. And that requires, you know, some innovative scheduling that, that we are still working on. And some schools have managed to figure it out. Uh, but it's a challenge to figure out how to accommodate that as part of the normal school day, particularly given obstacles to student transportation uh, and the, the, the magnitude of seat time requirements and graduation requirements that apply to getting a, a, a diploma from CPS. What advice would you give to larger urban districts who are thinking about going in the pathway direction? How would you advise them to kind of take the first step or move along this, this process? Well, you know, I don't know if the way that we did it is the only way to do it, but I'll tell you a little bit about how we did it. So when I first came to CPS, we had an opportunity to come together with our city college's partners and the help of a consultant that 
was sponsored by some of the big philanthropies in town to scope out what might a comprehensive partnership look like to in- increase student success um, in terms of our graduates from CPS who move on to the city colleges. And so we spent several months doing a lot of research, applied research, desk research, interviews with students and stakeholders and faculty to understand what the obstacles were to student success and what the potential solutions could be. And we encoded some of those solutions in a written document called Chicago Roadmap that is is dictating at a high level, what are the things that we are going to commit to doing together over the next five years? And dual credit pathways in, in three major areas were part of that initial written commitment. And so being able to get that that written document, in addition to a memorandum of understanding between the two institutions that indeed this is how we're going to pursue it, as well as a regular governance structure of, you know, here's how we're going to do the very in the weeds work of, you know, which courses are we going to offer and, you know, how can we make sure we get students registered in that too? How can we make sure that departmental leadership across the organizations is aligned on what the plan and what the implementation timetable is? And how can we also make sure that at the executive level, um, the leaders of the organizations are bought in, committed, aware, and have a regular opportunity to be updated and to help us solve any roadblocks that are emerging sort of lower down in the organization. So for us, being able to put together a written plan that we can all see and agree to and putting together a governance structure to be able to implement that plan, I think has helped sort of institutionalize this and is part of our path towards sustainability that we hope and believe will keep this on the map, no pun intended, for both institutions, even despite changes in organizational leadership, for instance, like we're having at CPS right now, right? Um, We don't want this to be a program that's just, we don't want it to be a program at all. We want it to be a, a system partnership that that both institutions, regardless of, of the people who are doing the work, are committed to doing together over time. So I think I'd recommend sort of investing that early time in doing that needs analysis, doing that stakeholder analysis, identifying based on research what the solutions could be, and then encoding that and linking it to, to a governance structure. I think that's a big piece of it. You know, one thing that we that we don't have that I think would be helpful in a lot of cases is an intermediary organization that can sort of broker between the two institutions as uh, an objective party and can add a lot of sort of technical capacity around project management and execution. So we've had to try to over, you know, to address those needs internally. uh, But there are a lot of places that have leveraged an intermediary to do that. And it can be helpful, you know, only because, each institution does have its own leadership and um, incentives and success metrics. And so this is a major change management enterprise. And um, it's a lot of additional work. You know, coordination is costly and there's a ton of it that goes along with doing something as ambitious as we're trying to do. And so whether it's an intermediate organization or whether it's building those intermediary functions into the existing organizations, it's really important to have more capacity than you did before if this is something that you're going to embark on. It's, it's, it's not only more work. It's certainly related to work that we had been doing before, but it's bigger and it's more intensive. Great. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your thoughts and uh, look to be working with you even more. Likewise. Thank you so much, Juan Jose. It's been my pleasure. I'm Sarah Rudofsky. I am the CTE Director for Curriculum Instruction and Work-Based Learning for CPS. 
I've been with CPS for the last 11 years, all with career and technical education. And uh, during that time, I've served as uh, assessment specialist and then really delved more into curriculum and instruction, a curriculum development in our 32 different pathways and instructional support for our close to 200 CTE teachers throughout the district. Recently, I have also taken on a leadership role with work-based learning. And in that role, really bringing in and integrating work-based learning into instruction and into the curriculum for CTE. So I'm Alexandra Vlahakis, and I have um, been working for CPS less than a year. However, I come from um, other districts that were trying to do very similar uh, things as the model pathways as Chicago Public Schools. One of them was Detroit. The other one is Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, the state of Georgia. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how the implementation of model pathways with the leadership of Sarah, myself, Michael Dozer, is going to help Chicago Public School students leverage themselves in the workforce with more opportunities to get into different degrees and different colleges. Alexandra, you mentioned implementing pathways in some other districts and statewide initiatives. How does the implementation of like model pathways in Chicago Public Schools feel similar or different to some of those kind of other examples that you experienced? Yeah, and that's, that's a great question. So one of the things that I've been, you know, really looking forward to seeing in Chicago is this intentional placement of uh career opportunities in the space of career and technical education and early college for students and the ability for students to be able to choose a career and be able to get 15 dual credits while they're still in high school is an incredible opportunity. And also being able to see how this is going to leverage students to actually uh, get better opportunities once they reach college. Sarah, for you, you've, you obviously have a lot of experience with kind of current uh, technical education, curriculum development. How does like model pathways feel similar or kind of augment those kind of past experiences and maybe how might it be uniquely different? Yeah, so I think that there has been a, a very natural progression from what career and technical education has historically been, and that is a vocational education um, possibly and, and branded as, you know, pathways for students who aren't pursuing college. And when we look at what high skills uh, and in-demand professions really necessitate, they're looking at uh, that second piece of paper. And it's generally um, in the form of a college degree. And that could be an AA degree, but it also uh, bachelor's, you know, master's and on, on and on. And so when we're wanting to set our students up on a pathway that gives them choices, we want to make sure that they have the idea of both college and career, not college or career. And I think that that's an important progression that I've seen really change over the time that I've been here. And it's exciting to be a part of that transition from a, a kind of traditional vocab to a more nuanced uh, career development pathways in high schools. So uh, with kind of the, the shift from traditional vocational education to more like intentional development of pathways and college and career access, you know, we heard from uh, Chief Duzer around the implementation of model pathways, potentially in health science. 
can you just tell us a little bit about kind of what is the model pathway in health science? You know, how do you, how many schools are you working with? How did you recruit the schools? And kind of what are you getting the schools to do different than maybe what they had been doing before? So um, before we have we introduced model pathways, I believe we had we have fifteen health science programs across the city, and in those programs there were varying degrees of opportunities for dual credit for our students. Uh, There was certainly piloting uh, anatomy and physiology and the um, medical terminology coursework. But it wasn't formalized, and it also wasn't a strategic pathway for students where they would see themselves as progressing not only through their high school three-year sequence, but also gaining those college credits. Uh, We then looked at how does the career and technical education curriculum need to be reinforced with core academic subjects, but also the, uh, the work-based learning opportunities for our students so that their understanding, and we recently had a very interesting presentation on, on student recruitment and readiness, so interest and readiness. And work-based learning factored very much into that because when you are able to see Others who may look like you, who may have the same story as you, doing work uh, that you are interested in and are studying, it is just that much more motivating to go and follow in those footsteps, right? So when you hear guest speakers, job shadows, and uh, do internships and hopefully into a youth apprenticeship program, you really have those work skills reinforced with what you're learning in the classroom. Yeah, and I'll add to that that, you know, there was this, again, intentional uh, way of putting these model pathways together. And with the component of being able to work with the community colleges, we sat with them, we crosswalked all the different curriculum, we looked at our CTE curriculum, we, we've um, looked at where are the actual natural opportunities for these programs to match each other between the high school and the uh, community college So with that intention, we built these pathways where the students are able to very, you know, purposely take particular classes. So by the time they graduate, these dual credits segue into a work-based learning apprenticeship and then the actual career courses that they need to take to become whatever uh, career they choose to you, to go into from the health sciences. So that mapping component was, was so crucial. But additionally, we had to look at where are there opportunities at our high schools so that we can pick these eight pilot schools with teachers credentialing because the teachers needed to have the right credentialing to be able to actually go into these dual credit courses we were asking them to teach. So very important for us to all align, to work very closely with the community colleges, to work closely with ed systems, and to be able to really truly look at like, where are these natural opportunities already occurring so that the students really get a very rich experience in these model pathways. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of a snapshot of like the type of high schools that entered into the pilot and some of the unique features that they kind of may present as a part of a cohort? The high schools are some CTE and we do have a couple that are non-CTE high schools. Um, they're, you know, all types of different demographics. We were, you know, very, um, very intentional in looking at where are there opportunities for us to also increase 
different demographics of students opportunities so that, you know, the data that we had gathered of where there were gaps of, you know, students and different opportunities um, started to kind of increase. So one of the things we looked at is, you know, what is our Latinx population? Where are those particular high schools that, you know, will be able to allow Latinx kids to have more opportunities with the model pathways? Where are there African-American um, males opportunities, which is we found in our data was actually, you know, one of the groups that really needed some push to get into these pathways. We looked at those. We looked at, you know, um, the, obviously where there were also already programs because the lift of putting in the, the eight pilots, the first initial eight pilots was a little hard. So we needed to also look at where's their CT courses already occurring. And that helped a lot, right? Where there was already opportunities occurring, we add the model pathway opportunity to it. And that kind of just segued into, you know, a, a better way to get started. I think that from the just a a really like logistical uh, perspective, the readiness guide that we had this, the schools complete to qualify as a, a pilot was really, really helpful because they had to reflect on what type of support systems were already at the school and what do they anticipate needing. So it was helpful for us to have that flagged because we could see, ah, you have a qualified teacher, you have a built-out lab, but you may need some assistance in recruiting students or you may need some um, assistance with getting students ready to take uh, the the qualifying exams for being uh, deemed college ready with the city colleges. And so it gave us a flag of what we could do to support them, but also understood where they were ready. That readiness guide has also led them in the right direction as to what do we continue to work on, right? To make sure that everything is being, um, all of our goals are being met, that the right types of students are being placed into the programs, et cetera. So I think that component and the additional um, frameworks that we have provided them with and our PLC groups where we're meeting once a month with these particular um, schools to ensure that everybody has a voice and everybody's also sharing good practices and, you know, even the small wins are great things for other schools to listen to, right? Because in the recruiting of students and the maintaining of these programs, it takes a lot. And for them to be able to support each other is so key. Wow. So what I'm hearing is that there was kind of almost like an application process right? that schools had to kind of enter in, kind of flag strengths and weaknesses for themselves. And then you use that application process to kind of create a set of seems like monthly professional development and support uh, for those schools. You know, now that you've kind of meeting with them regularly and kind of trying to hash out some of their initial challenges, what are some of the barriers that are still persistent across schools? What are some victories maybe you've started to see happen or has there been any aha moments among like school-based staff? From a curriculum point of view, uh, there was initially some questions about sequencing and what made sense. When do students take medical terminology, right? And then how does that lead into uh, anatomy and physiology, which usually were taken simultaneously? We, net, we broke those apart so that medical terms informs the student's foundation for uh, the anatomy and physiology class. So that from a curriculum side, we made some adjustments and uh, have then standardized that, that sequence, even for those schools that aren't pilot schools, 
uh, it's now just a part of our CTE uh, program. So that was that was an initial barrier that we overcame. You know, what we do see is the enrollment of students and the ability for students to be able to actually place into the model pathway. So there are barriers there. You know, the community college requires them to have a particular type of, you know, testing or placement scores, scores, right, to actually get into the programs. And so therefore, actually, just yesterday, we were having a big uh, presentation to our district to try to solve that problem. Like, how do we make this more accessible to all students? How do we make this equitable? And I think that's something that, you know, we will have to continuously work on so that we are ensuring that on the, you know, back end, the students are being prepared well enough to be able to place into it. But at the same time, working with the community colleges to see where are there better ways to get students to come into the programs? What can we do to ensure that there is availability for them? Maybe that requires a little bit of change, right? But those are all discussions that we're going to have to continuously make. So it's easier for students to place into the program. But I think, you know, another thing that I I heard the schools talk about a lot was the recruiting of teachers. Mm -hmm. So that's also a big struggle, that ability to be able to find the teacher who has the right credentialing to be able to teach the class. And I think as we start to bring in other model pathways like IT and other, you know, STEM related ones like manufacturing and and so forth, we're going to encounter that more so because the qualifications of the teachers is may not be up to the, you know, space that we need it to be so that they can actually teach those courses. So we're ensuring that component by giving them some PD during the summer, allowing them to take classes at the community college and at the university level so that they can prepare themselves to teach these dual credit courses. But it's going to take a while for these teachers to get to that point, right? Because not only do we want them to take it and get credential, but we want them to have high quality education. We want them to be able to really give that student that experience that they're supposed to get when they're taking JavaScripting or when they're taking a Python class, which the IT pathways will bring in. What was your message or pitch to recruit or kind of encourage principals to enter the pilot? And what do you feel was like a winning communication or kind of partnership strategy with them? I think that readiness guide was definitely really helpful because we brought them in as a big group and they looked at themselves in a different light, right? And they started to build, okay, if we have this and we have this and we have this, and maybe, yeah, we can actually do this instead of bringing them in and letting them just, you know, tell us about their school and all that. We really brought them and asked them, please take a look at yourselves and see all the great opportunity you already have. Is it a big lift? Is it a small lift we're asking you to do? But this really is something you can do, right? If you put the right things in place. I think that helped a lot. Don't you think so, Sarah? I think so. And then aligning it also to the the high school vision strategy that we have, the the five-year plan from CPS and large uh, initiatives in the city and in the district to, and, and showing how those reinforce, model pathways reinforce what it is that they're already being asked to do. I also think that really bringing it into, you know, what does this do for students? Because what I do, I always find is that a principal cares about that. Mm-hmm. When you bring it to the student level and where, how students benefit, I think that was a real boon. Um, I think also including the teachers mm-hmm. in the process, in that readiness, because there were, there were groups of teachers and administrators together. 
because they're the ones who are going to be implementing it. And if your teacher is saying, wow, I can do this, this is great, and I'm very interested, I think a principal also then has a lot more um, a lot more faith that he or she is not going to be doing it alone. This teacher is on board, they're ready, and uh, that advocacy is really helpful. And I think it gives credentialing to the school, too, in the long yeah. run. You know, the, the principal feels proud that they now have this dual credit opportunity that's very, uh, very rich in an experience. And so I think that that was also a win for the principals and, you know, maybe part of the buy-in, right? Yeah. I think we're, if with your permission, we would love to kind of link in the notes of this episode some of those like readiness frameworks that you sure. guys are talking about and some of those materials so folks can see kind of like the preparation it takes. And I think that would be very helpful. Alex, you mentioned kind of the inclusion of like other pathways in IT and manufacturing. What would be the next step for those? Kind of what do you foresee in terms of the challenges for those pathways relative to health science? And what's yeah. the next frontier for you all? Yeah, so I think, you know, um, the future is it's very exciting, first of all. I mean, especially the, the component of bringing in this whole computer science, com, you know, into the model pathways. So a lot of the districts that I've been, you know, Detroit, Florida, all these places that I have um, had experience with don't have this type of scenario. And this is where, you know, your initial question is like, how is this different, right? Well, it's very different because we're really truly looking at where is there this opportunity for students to take computer science courses that are going to be at a higher level, that are going to give them actual college credit. And how does that translate to a student really going into computer science or a STEM-related career? Because I think what's missing in a lot of the spaces is we're giving computer science experiences and courses to students, but are we truly looking at like what happens after that course, right? What happens after high school? Where do they place? Do they really create this workforce of computer scientists or STEM-related workforce that we're all desperately looking for? Every city that I have been to is in the same place. They're all looking for it. Where's the generation of kids who's going to be able to do these really intense technical jobs that are out there? And I think that's where Chicago is really steering the way. And they're just going to be able to really produce these really highly qualified kids who can really do great things in the future. Anything else you guys would give as advice to other districts looking to implement pathways or trying to maybe go from dipping the toe in the water into like splashing in the pool, like any words of wisdom you might impart there? I'm always a, a proponent for a pilot and starting small working and then to, and then scaling um, when you've learned some lessons and taking feedback and truly listening to your um your constituency who you are supporting so that means students that means partners and, and uh, teachers administrators and then making adjustments dip your toe in the water make a splash and then jump in but don't just jump in until you've had some experience that would be my advice yeah i think you scale too fast you know too soon you're going to end up with a lot of you know barriers or maybe hitting a lot of walls right I think it's important to to really look at, you know, this is the ideal scenario. And that also provides you with the opportunity to have these schools that can be coaches or, you know, mentoring the other schools because they've already been through it, you know. And so then having that support system that, you know, like the, like I mentioned, the PLC and being able to bring in these new people into the ones who have already had that experience, I think is so important, too, because they can teach each other. Right. And that support system kind of sustains itself also. 
But, you know, one thing we didn't talk about was manufacturing and the ability to be able to bring in kids into that area. There is so much need in manufacturing. Manufacturing has changed as we know it to begin with. And so being able to find instructors, being able to really build these really intense programs so that students really are able to go into manufacturing is another way that Chicago is going to lead the way, you know, because they're going to be able to have a workforce of kids who really can take that on. And that's attractive to the city, right? And that brings me to another point is that work with the city. You know, we have a lot of work, work-based learning opportunities that are being provided to us because we're working hand in hand with the city. We meet very regularly with them. And they allow us to then kind of look at like, you know, better picture of where are there things for our students to to be able to do. And with that comes that youth apprenticeship opportunity that we have that we're building with um, the community colleges and the city. And that's another exciting area because not only will the kids have these model pathways, but they'll have a youth apprenticeship and then an apprenticeship program that will actually be done while they're actually in college. So, you know, that alone is humongous. Because a lot of people will tell you, I went into a career, but I didn't really know what I was going into, right? How many times have you heard that? And then these apprenticeships are going to give them that big picture view, right? Of like, yeah, this is what this is about. And I really like networking. I really like computer science or I really like being a nurse or maybe I don't, right? But that's okay. At least you had the opportunity to make that change and that decision versus I've gone into something and I don't really know why I'm doing it, right? That was Michael Duzer, Sarah Rudofsky, and Alexandra Vlahakis of Chicago Public Schools, speaking with our own Juan Jose Gonzalez, who's back in the studio with me. Now, this past year, Juan Jose, you together with several other members of our team have been working with CPS to evaluate their current pathway offerings and help them align those to state policy, like the Dual Credit Act, Perkins 5, and the PWR Act just like we did with the Illinois Model Programs of Study Guides. So now that the district has reached the point to launch their new health sciences pathway, I'm curious, what have you learned through this process? And Juan Jose, what are your hot takes on what other districts could be learning from CPS? Thank you, Sarah. I think one thing that I really learned from the process with Chicago Public Schools and also working with their colleagues at City Colleges of Chicago is the need to cement for themselves a new and deeper relationship with their city college partner to kind of be creative in the selection of pathway offerings, uh, creative in the solutions to student accessibility and teacher eligibility to offer pathway courses, and always just like a willingness to push the envelope on high school staff and high school uh, leadership to implement the pathways, but also on college staff. In order to be a good partner for this, you know, they had been working together for a long time, but this new, deeper relationship they've had in regards to pathway implementation has been very impressive and something I highly recommend for large urban districts, but also districts who are entering into the pathway space to really have that post-secondary partner be kind of eye to eye with you on the pathway implementation. One other big takeaway that I got from Chicago Public Schools, which I think reiterates a lesson I learned from District 214 in our past episode, which is the need to have deep and robust buy-in from key stakeholders in the pathway implementation process. In District 214, that meant uh, buy-in from the teachers implementing an existing pathway in order to alter or adjust the sequence in order to, and implement it for you know, another generation of students. In the case of Chicago, what I really saw was the need for buy-in from school-level leadership. So that meant principals, associate principals, counselors, and maybe even like key CT teachers. 
And I really learned from Chicago how they had this like application process to highlight kind of willing schools in the pathway, but also the schools through the application had to indicate their strengths and weaknesses, which allowed district office staff to know how to better support those schools in order for proper pathway implementation. This kind of like buy-in, coaching, and kind of mutual respect and kind of engagement between district office and the school-based staff, I think is very important and something that um, districts always keep in mind when implementing pathways. Well, several of the resources mentioned in your interviews are actually now available on our website, edsystemsniu.org. Visit the page for this podcast or check our resources section to find them. And I know more resources are underway. Juan Jose, can you tell us what's next in our work with CPS? So I think for Chicago Public Schools, it's going to be fleshing out more pathway sectors that they can start to implement. So that might mean information technology, manufacturing, education, potentially, you know, construction, trades, business, fleshing out more of those pathways, filing uh, kind of more cohorts of schools willing to pilot and implement those pathways. And then deepening kind of the student access to key pathway courses, I think is going to be a very breakthrough uh, aspect of Chicago Public Schools work. They're not unique in this, and they wouldn't be the first to kind of break through eligibility, but their scale and volume in the state of Illinois would be really a big kind of example for other districts to follow. There's also going to be some work in terms of overlapping this with competency-based education. And I think with Chicago Public Schools in particular, going to a large-scale kind of work-based learning implementation or model where they have more than just a career in technical education students, but as many students as possible, doing work-based learning activities career development experiences, team-based projects is going to be a real kind of exemplar in this pathway space. You know, some of the largest districts nationwide who do this are like, you know, 20,000 high school students, 80,000 students overall. And, you know, Chicago has about 100,000 high school students at any given time. So implementing work-based learning, even at a fraction of their high school student body is still an immense scale. And I think that's going to be a very valuable lesson to see uh, what hiccups they have along the road. Well, that definitely sounds like we're going to need another update in a year or so. So Juan Jose, thanks for sharing your conversations with us. A special thanks to our friends at Chicago Public Schools for providing resources and your time. If you haven't already heard it, I encourage you to check out the first episode in this special two-part series where we hear from District 214 about their process for engaging faculty and community members in the design process for their pathways. You can listen to that episode and all of our System Sessions podcasts on our website at systemsniu.org, or you can find us on Apple, Google, Audible, and more. So from the entire team at Ed Systems, thank you for joining us and keep up that hard work of supporting our young people to achieve college and career success.